And behold, some of the scribes said to themselves, this man is blaspheming. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, why do you think evil in your hearts? For which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He then said to the paralytic, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And he rose and went home. And the crowd saw it, they were afraid, and they glorified God, who had given such authority to men. Let's pray, uh, pray and ask the Lord to bless our time this morning. Father, we come again to a passage that glorifies the Son of God in our eyes, and I pray, Father, that you would magnify him in our hearts and our minds this morning, that we would see the glory of what he has brought to us, something which man could never have reached out and attained on his own. Father, thank you for your great mercy and for our loving Savior who has brought to us life and hope. Lord, I pray that you would be with my mouth this morning, that I would speak clearly and accurately about who Christ is, and that it would motivate hearts, and that it would produce faith. And we ask this in your name. Amen. There's a lot of things in life that bring concern to our hearts. Making money would be one of them at the top of the list, right? We've got to meet our needs, and there's a lot of things that we'd like to have as well. There's also concerns in life over taking care of all those things we just bought with our money. There's relationships that create a whole set of concerns. We've got to maintain relationships. We have to work through differences with people. And there's concern over those we love and the bad decisions that they're making. We're, we're concerned for them. Serious illness and injury creates a lot of concern. Even when it's someone else, we still set aside everything in life and we run to be at their side, don't we? When they're sick or they're injured, we're concerned. There's concern related to life consequences. There's things in life that happen that we have no control over. They just happen. Accidents. We all have a great deal of concern, and some more than others. And mankind's quick to run to God for relief. We do that. We want healing from our illnesses. We want provision for our financial needs. We want our relationships repaired. We want our consequences lessened. Everyone wants their pain and difficulties alleviated. Is it a bad thing that we petition God for these things? No, it's not, is it? God desires for us to do that. Of course not. But it is also easy for those life issues to dominate our hearts and minds. We want all things here in this life, on this earth, to go well for us. The problem is the heart of man is so enamored with this world that people are unable to recognize their real problem is sin and the fact that they're separated from God because of their sin. As Jesus will say later in Matthew chapter 16, what will it profit a man if he gains the entire world and forfeits his soul? It's a good rhetorical question with an obvious answer. There's no profit at all, only complete loss. You can have everything in this life go your way. 
And apart from Christ, you have a net zero. You, you experience total loss. Our passage today is just another in a string of narratives that Matthew uses to display the authority of Jesus Christ. He's demonstrated his power uh, thus far in Matthew's gospel, his power over the physical body. For example, Jesus healed diseases like leprosy. He healed the centurion's servant. He cured whatever was causing Peter's mother-in-law to be ill with a fever. He even cured, if you remember, all the sick in the Galilee region that came to the door that night. Everyone, every disease, every ailment, every disability. His power literally eradicated illness and deformity in the entire region. Unbelievable. What power. He also demonstrates his power over the spiritual realm because he cast out demons with authority. Jesus demonstrated his power over the natural elements. He calmed the storm with a command, be still, and it was instantly still. Matthew's use of this particular event is not random, though. It's purposeful. He strategically places this event, this episode, in his gospel in order to demonstrate the power and authority of Jesus to do all that the Messiah was prophesied to be and to do. And while this miracle recorded here is similar to his early miracles, for example, Jesus has already healed a paralytic. It's also very unique in in that the central issue at hand is actually the forgiveness of sin. Jesus had power and authority over everything around them, but did he have power over sin? Matthew then is, is very brief in his recollection of this event, uh, in this event compared with Mark and Luke because he's trying to focus on this one main issue. The central proposition, you see it there in verse 6, that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. This is what the Messiah is supposed to do, bring forgiveness. The prophets had spoken of this. Isaiah, in his Messianic texts, Isaiah 40, 1 through 2, Comfort, comfort my people, says God. Speak kindly to Jerusalem and call out to her that her warfare has ended, that her iniquity has been removed. Isaiah 44, 21 through 23, Remember these things, O Jacob, and Israel, for you are my servant. I have formed you. You are my servant, O Israel, You will not be forgotten by me. I have wiped out your transgressions like a thick cloud and your sins like a heavy mist. Return to me, for I have redeemed you. Shout for joy, O heavens, for the Lord has done it. Shout joyfully, you lower parts of the earth. Break forth into a shout of joy, you mountains, O forests, and every tree in it, for the Lord has redeemed Jacob. And in Israel, he shows forth his glory. Isaiah 33, 24, listen to this. And no resident will say, I am sick. The people who dwell there will be forgiven their iniquity. Jesus is going to demonstrate in this passage that he is the Messiah who brings forgiveness and has authority over forgiveness. 
So as we look through this text, we're going to break it down into these, these parts. The setting, the belief, the conflict, and the responses. So let's look at the setting. Verse 1, it says, And getting into a boat, he crossed over and came to his own city. So following Matthew's flow of events that are taking place, Jesus was just in the region of the Gadarenes. If you remember, he, he cast demons uh, out of a demon-possessed man into a herd of pigs, and these pigs then ran down the bank and they drowned in the sea. They more or less committed suicide. Did sort of a... Well, it's sort of a swine dive off the cliff. Anyway, sorry, I couldn't help myself. If you remember, when the surrounding people saw what took place with these pigs, what was their reaction? They asked him to leave. They said, we don't want you around us. So Jesus gets into a boat and, and with his disciples, and he returns, it says, to his own town. That's what our text says. This is, referred to, uh, this is referring to Capernaum. And we know this because Mark's account in Mark chapter 2, this same event, he says, and when he, Jesus, returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home. So it's interesting. Capernaum is where Jesus had healed Peter's mother-in-law. Remember, we just mentioned that. Um, And he was in Peter's house when he did that. Jesus stayed with them that day, and he healed many in the town, in that location, the whole region. They came from everywhere to be healed. And it's, it is very possible that Jesus remains at Peter's house, using it as it is sort of a base of operations as he went out and he ministered and spread the gospel to the countryside. And everywhere Jesus went, he seemed to draw huge crowds, and everywhere he went, he healed. So Capernaum is considered, at this point, his own town his home. And, it, and it's hard to say how much time transpired between the end of chapter 8 in Matthew and the beginning of chapter 9 at this point. Mark and Luke in, include a whole bunch of other events that we don't see in Matthew. But again, Matthew is not trying to provide all that occurred, nor is he trying to provide a detailed chronological order of events. That's not his intent. Uh, Matthew is interested in demonstrating that Jesus is the long-awaited Davidic king, the Messiah. That's what he's trying to prove. So Jesus is at home in Capernaum, a small town on the north shore of Galilee, and it's possibly at the house of Peter. So that's where we begin. Mark tells us that when word got out that Jesus was there, so many gathered that there was no room, not even at the door. That's what the account of Mark tells us. There were so many people in the house The house was filled up, and the crowd ran out the door and likely probably around the house to where you couldn't even get to the door to even see what was going on. So according to Mark and Luke, Jesus is teaching and preaching. Luke adds that the Pharisees and the teacher of the law were there as well. Uh, They'd come from uh, from every village in Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem. So a very wide area. So there's a lot of... Pharisees and scribes that are sitting there in the crowd there that day. And this wouldn't be a big surprise to to have those spiritual leaders of Israel being there. Jesus was a huge disruption in the country, doing things that had never been done and teaching in a way that had never been done. Uh, The nation had been desperately waiting for the Messiah to come, and Jesus' ministry was creating this humongous buzz. 
So on one hand, the religious leaders had to check out any potential Messiah. They had to go look and investigate. They were present in order to critique what Jesus was saying and what he was doing. On the other hand, in their unbelief, they were already at odds with Jesus. So that's the setting that we have. Then comes the belief. Verse 2, And behold, some people brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. Mark tells us in his account that there was actually four men that were carrying this bed. Or a sort of bedroll is essentially what it was. And the man that they were carrying was paralyzed. Paralysis wasn't unheard of. There are many ways in which a person can become paralyzed, correct? Uh, Might have been a birth defect. Maybe he'd always been paralyzed because of a birth defect. It could have been a result of a horrible disease or illness. Those things cause paralysis. Maybe it was from some bad accident that damaged his nerves. But there's no way, no no modern medicine a person could turn to in that time. There's, There's no way to diagnose or treat anything like this. You simply had to accept your fate. But even if there were modern medicine back then, there exists some damage that just isn't repaired. We don't know the extent or the kind of paralysis the man suffered from, but it couldn't have been good, judging from the fact that you have four men carrying him on a mat. He obviously couldn't even crawl there. And this paralyzed man would have been lying, uh, would have been living with a tremendous stigma or a shame that was associated with his condition as well. We, we are disassociated from that, but in that society, having this type of condition created a stigma. He would have been literally a social outcast. He would have been of no benefit to his family or society. And he would have never have been able to participate in worship at the temple. That just was not allowed. It makes one wonder what the relationship was with these four men that are trying to carry him. Who were they? Maybe they were family. Maybe it was just Friends who really cared? Doesn't tell us. Either way, they demonstrate this sense of love and dedication toward this man who's helpless. This this paralyzed man could not help himself, but he had four friends or family members who were full of faith and hope and love for this man. But by what Mark and Luke add, we know that the house was so packed full of people that he couldn't even get to the door. But these four men so desperately wanted to get this paralytic to Jesus that they took him up on the roof and tried to get through the roof. Many many in that day used their roof for various purposes. You'll see it throughout the scriptures, different things that they used their roof for. Not the least of which was as they would often sit on the roof in the evening in the cool of the day and just rest on on the roof. So because of this, they often had a set of stairs on the outside of the house that would take you up to the roof. It's, it's very possible that these guys access some stairs like this to get up to the roof. It's very possible. After determining where Jesus' location is in the house, these guys actually start digging through the roof. 
And you need to understand that a roof in that day was not plywood and shingles. You didn't just pull a few things apart and then the roof is open, okay? Roof construction started with timbers, four, six, eight inches diameter that would cross the structure. Then they would tightly pack branches going the opposite direction, perpendicular to those. And then they would pack that full of mud and they would compact it. And then you'd have branches go the opposite direction and more mud and more branches and more mud, all compact in between, layers and layers. Imagine being on the inside of this house when all this is going down. <laughs> You're sitting in front of Jesus, listening carefully what he's saying, then suddenly there's a little bit of dirt. You hear some crackling, and then all of a sudden big chunks of mud and branches and stuff start falling, and the whole place is a big dusty mess, and everything's falling on everybody's heads. I mean, can you imagine the scene, what that looked like? It was no, no small disturbance. You can imagine as well, if this happened to be Peter's house, what reaction Peter had to the situation. He uh, was not very soft-spoken. These guys were frantically dismantling this roof system. It had to take a lot of effort, and I guarantee it took some time to do and it created this huge mess on the heads of everybody down below. But these men were driven and determined to get this man to Jesus. They break through the roof and they lower the guy down right in the middle of the crowd and right in front of Jesus. What was driving these men so hard? Why were they so determined? might have been just the desire for a physical healing for the man, but it seems like it's much more by the text. It was a common belief throughout the centuries that illness and suffering were a direct result of specific sin. You can remember seeing this in the book of Job. After all his suffering and his loss, and his friends come to comfort him in his time of distress... When they finally speak with him, they say, come on, Job, confess your sin. We know you had to sin. Otherwise, all these bad things wouldn't have happened to you. Obviously, you've got some sin to confess. Even in Jesus' day, this was a common belief. If you remember in John chapter 9, Jesus is passing by a man who's been blind from birth, it says, and his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned this man or his parents that he would be born blind? And the, the disciples thought they were asking an intelligent and, and reasonable question. But they were off. They were way off, weren't they? Jesus said, it's not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the work of God might be displayed in him. We can't make that judgment. Some sins are and some sins aren't. The result of sin. Or uh, suffering. Some suffering is a result of sin, some isn't. Is there, is there a sense in which all sickness and suffering is a result of sin? Well, sure. Absolutely. All sickness, deformity, pain, suffering is a direct consequence of the corruption and the sin of mankind. But we've got to be careful with the assumption that a specific sin an individual commits is a direct consequence of their losses and their pain. But in that time... It was generally assumed. 
And this man had been feeling the huge weight of a society which saw him as a horrible, wicked man because he suffered so grievously. That said, it would not be a stretch to suppose that this paralyzed man was feeling the weight of his sin and his guilt. Whatever, whether, whether it was related to his paralysis or not. It would also not be a stretch to think that all five of these men were feeling the weight of sin in that circumstance. Because it says in verse 2, when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. Isn't that interesting? It's interesting that Jesus, in response to their faith as well. He says, there. When he saw their faith, plural. Meaning the faith of the paralytic and those four men who brought him. But in this moment, this man is laid bare before Jesus in this crowd. The crowd must have been pretty annoyed <laughs> with this interruption. Let alone the noise and the huge mess that was just dumped on their heads. Now this man is lowered in his ugly condition and exposed before everybody to see. And Jesus says to him, take heart. Again, just as every one of these passages that I've looked at recently, Jesus' responses are so gentle. In other words, be of courage, be of cheer, my son. Words of tender encouragement followed by the greatest declaration ever spoken to man, your sins are forgiven. The fact that Jesus first deals directly with sin reinforces to me the idea that this man was there for far more than just physical healing. Jesus had performed many miracles, even bringing the dead back to life, but no miracle is greater than man being forgiven of his sin. The kingdom of God had broken into the world, and Jesus Christ is declaring himself Lord over sin and forgiveness. Just as Jesus commands with a word, and the leper is healed, or that the blind man receives his sight, just as Jesus commands by his word that the sea be still or that a demon be removed and be silent, by the command of Jesus, a man receives the forgiveness and mercy of God. This word translated here, forgiveness, means to pardon, to release from debt, obligation, or penalty, even to hurl it away is the sense of the word. Jesus has just given this man the supreme gift. When blinded by all the concerns of this life, it's hard to see that forgiveness really is the greatest of our needs. And it's so unbelievable the, the changes I've seen in my lifetime in this world. There's so much chaos today so much depravity, so much twisted thinking and behavior. It's easy to think pragmatically and to look at political or social solutions to things. Our life is filled with so many concerns. 
But when all things are weighed out, gaining the forgiveness of God is the one and only thing that really matters. All other concerns are secondary to gaining the forgiveness and life that only the Lord Jesus Christ gives. Just as this man's paralysis was secondary to his own issue of forgiveness. But when Jesus declared this man forgiven, he was also purposely opening up a conflict with the religious leaders that were in the attendance. I don't believe this was an accident. So here's the conflict, verse 3. And behold, some of the scribes said to them, uh, said to themselves, this man is blaspheming. In Luke's account, it says, the scribes and the Pharisees began to question, saying, who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? They were shocked that a mere man would be forgiving sins, since only God can forgive sins. And that is true. Only God can do that. Micah 7, 18 through 19 says, Who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance? He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. Isaiah 43, 25. God says, I... I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. David uh, said to God in Psalm 51, For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you will be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. David's crying out to God, No one else. He's crying out to God. And he says, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. Their objection's not an unnatural objection, is it? It's not incorrect. Only God can forgive sin. It's a blasphemous thing thing for a mere man to pardon the sin of another in this sense because the offense is against God. Only God can provide that kind of forgiveness. Where these men failed was not in their assumption. It was in their rejection of Jesus, his identity, and his authority. That's where they failed. They were incredibly proud, spiritually proud. Their their obedience to their own traditions had convinced them that they were righteous and deserving before God. They didn't need God's forgiveness. They were righteous. While this paralyzed man desperately sought Jesus and humbly laid himself before him, the Pharisees hid their sin under a disguise of self-righteousness, and they despise Jesus. They also believe that they possessed all spiritual knowledge and knew what was right. The Pharisees would not accept Jesus' bold claims and teachings, and they ignored the indescribable proofs he performed in front of their eyes every day. They rejected it. 
they not only rejected his validity as a teacher, they rejected him as a Messiah, just flat out. But Jesus was God. Jesus had always been God, and Jesus will always be God. He indeed possesses all power and authority to forgive sin. He is the only one. In fact, no one will ever be forgiven unless the Son of God forgives him. And no one will receive the forgiveness in Christ unless they first acknowledge who he is and they come to him in complete humility and utter dependence. This is the first major conflict we see between Jesus and the religious leaders in the book of Matthew. But I'm certain that there was others before this. And things escalate through Matthew quite rapidly. But look at Jesus' response to them in verse 4. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Why do you think evil in your hearts? Funny, isn't it, that the only reason we know what the Pharisees and the scribes were thinking and what they were saying to each other is because of the omniscience of the Son of God? I think that's really interesting. Jesus Christ knows all things. He knows the heart of man. It's not hidden from him. In fact, in John chapter 2, we're told that many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. Jesus knew the hearts of these five men who were interrupting their gathering. Jesus knew their hearts. He acknowledged their faith and he forgave sin. But he also knew the thoughts of these scribes and Pharisees and exposed the evil that was in their hearts as well. In their presumption, they thought they were protecting the holy name of God, but they were actually the blasphemers because they were exposing their evil thoughts towards the very Son of God. They refused to acknowledge who he was. So Jesus makes it easy for all to understand, starting in verse 5. So for which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he then said to the paralytic, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. In a, in a physical or material sense, it's, isn't it easier to say your sins are forgiven? I mean, after all, you, you don't know if the person's sin's really forgiven. It's really easy for someone to claim it. I could pick anybody in this room and say your sins are forgiven. You don't know if it's true or not. What's really difficult is to take a totally paralyzed man and say, rise, pick up your bed, and go home and then have that man instantly healed, get up, take his mat, and walk home. That would be difficult. It's easier to say to a person, your sins are forgiven, than to perform an impossible healing before the eyes of the masses around you. But for the sake of what they can perceive, Jesus completely heals this man of his infirmity. No surgery, no long recovery, no physical therapy, no teaching him how to walk, just an instantaneous healing 
an immediate and complete physical restoration of this man. By his inexplicable ability to heal, Jesus proves that he is indeed God and that he has the power and authority to forgive sin. That is the point. He says, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He then said to the paralytic, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And all of this leads to some key responses. First, the paralytic man, verse 7. And he rose and went home. That's all it says. In Luke's version, he says, And immediately he rose up before them, picked up what he had been lying on, and went home glorifying God. He did exactly what Jesus commanded him to do. There's no details about his healing, no follow-up story about this guy on the mat. Just that he got up and fully obeyed Jesus. And he was able to obey Jesus because he had been completely restored and was able to do so. The bed carried the man, and now the man carried the bed. No one could ignore what just transpired. He walked right up from among their midst, demonstrating the great power and authority of Jesus. And if Jesus had the power to heal in such a way, he certainly had the power to forgive the sins as he he claimed he did. One commentator put it this way. He said, the charge of blasphemy has been totally disproven, and Jesus' divine authority doubly established Power over both sickness and sin. Which leads to the response of the crowd. Verse 8. When the crowd saw it, they were afraid. And they glorified God who had given such authority to men. They are afraid, it says. They were literally awestruck, full of deep, reverent fear. Luke, Luke says it this way. He says, they are seized with amazement. They understood the authority and the supernatural power of Jesus, and they glorified God for bringing this down to earth. But while they recognized that Jesus was a God-sent agent with authority, Matthew exposes their ignorance and that they thought God had simply given this authority mere man. Many still struggle to understand that this man was the Messiah, the Son of God. They're fascinated with him, but they don't see who he is. What about the scribes and Pharisees? The passage says this. Nothing. It says absolutely nothing. There's no no reaction recorded from these men. What could they say? What's their argument? There's no denying what just took place. Everybody just saw it happen. I mean, what do you do? They certainly couldn't join in and glorify God. And so they appear to do nothing. They say nothing. They sit on their hands. The passage describes these three groups of people. Those that hate and reject Jesus. Those that admire him and are fascinated by him and those who experience his forgiveness. 
I highly doubt that there's anybody here this morning who despises Jesus. I can't imagine you even wanting to be here this morning if you despise Jesus. But there's a way of rejecting him nonetheless. When one considers yourself good and righteous because of your efforts, I'm a pretty good guy. God has to be happy with me. You can never gain God's favor through your good behavior. And like this paralyzed man, you must lay yourself bare and exposed before him and demonstrate that you were helpless without him. Additionally, you cannot simply admire him. You must give all in order to gain him. These five men saw who Jesus was and they were desperate to get to him. Nothing would get in their way. Nothing. And if you're listening this morning and you have never come to Christ with a desperate desire to gain his forgiveness, I beg you to expose your wretchedness, the wretchedness of your life. Expose it to him and plead with him to be clean. God will oppose the proud, but he will give abundant grace to the humble. The Lord Jesus Christ will not turn away those who come to him with this kind of faith. But what about us who believe? How how does this apply to us? Great story. It would seem that we often treat salvation as a one-time experience. True, we are declared just before God through the power of Christ, and this doesn't change. We are declared righteous. That's fixed because of the work of God. Yet I think we often lose sight of the fact that the gospel is continually a part of our life. All the activities, all the concerns of this world, they so easily distract our hearts, making us focus entirely on the things that we ultimately can't control. We either become anxious all the time or we begin to act as if our strength is sufficient for these things. We can even resort to being admirers of Jesus rather than joyful, obedient worshipers of Christ. My my hope is that we all continually see Christ. That his glory would be ever present in our minds. That we remind ourselves continually of who he is. My prayer is that we would be ever conscious, conscious of our need for him and we would Give everything to be near him. This is the way we experience the joy of Christ. And I I want the joy of Christ to be the strength and the song of your every day, even, even in the midst of difficulties. Praise God for our Redeemer, Jesus Christ, who who has looked into your eyes and he has declared. Your sins are forgiven. So, Father, we pray that you would lift up the name of Christ in our hearts. Lord, we as a congregation, as a people, would delight in him, that we would yearn for him, that we would rejoice in him, that we would be eager to honor and obey him in all things. 
that our greatest concern would not be our own concerns, that our greatest concern would be him. Lord, teach us to delight in him, to rejoice in him, to revere him, to love him. Thank you, Father, for the forgiveness that Christ and only Christ can bring and has been given to us freely through his grace. And we pray this in his name. Amen.